Hi, and welcome to the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this installment Waiting for Cake. That's because SCOTUS seems to be saving room for dessert as the justices turn up their noses at several major LGBT legal entrees. The court, of course, already granted review in the big gay wedding cake case from Colorado, but the court passed over an employment discrimination case, a license to discriminate case, a trans rights case, and a resisting Obergefell case. We're going to begin by chatting for a bit with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School about some of those cert denials. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Then I'm going to speak with Art about the flurry of LGBT rights-related cases from overseas. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit with our own legal director, Brett Figluski, about a really important New York parenting case. And of course, as I mentioned last time, the LGBT Bar of New York is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. So we have a very special of note segment where I'm going to be talking with our founder about what it was like to hold the very first LGBT Bar Association of New York meeting in his living room all those decades ago. So let's dig in. As the Supreme Court's 2017-18 term began in October, it really looked like it was going to be a banner year for LGBT-related cases. Petitions were pending, asking the court to address a wide range of issues, which included whether LGBT people were protected under Title VII at work, at schools under Title IX, whether LGBT people in Mississippi had standing to seek a federal order to prevent a seriously anti-gay, religiously motivated law from taking effect in that state, and then whether the Texas Supreme Court erred in holding that, eh, Obergefell didn't really require equal benefits for same-sex couples. Our, Our hopes of getting Justice Kennedy to review every possible LGBT rights-related case ASAP so that he didn't retire and leave us at the mercy of another Gorsuch didn't exactly pan out. This Mississippi law is one of the most odious anti-LGBT pieces of legislation that we've seen pass in recent memory. Can you tell us a little bit about HB 1523 and why SCOTUS refused to take up this case? Okay, well, H- HB 1523, of course, was a response to Obergefell and to the issues popping up around the country of uh, clerks who didn't want to issue marriage licenses and uh, people who didn't want to have to deal uh, with gay people doing weddings and wanting services and goods in connection with weddings, wedding cakes and flower arrangements and stuff like that. And uh, ultimately, uh, it's sort of like the anti-gay right-wing wish list mm-hmm. was compiled and put together into an omnibus anti-gay bill, which went right through the Mississippi legislature like a, a hot knife through butter. And, <laughs> and, and the senator and the, the governor signs it with alacrity, and it was supposed to go into effect uh, on uh, July 1st, 2016, uh, barely a year after the Obergefell decision came out. Uh, but two groups of plaintiffs brought constitutional challenges against the law, and uh, they both ended up before Judge Carlton Reeves in the Southern District of Mississippi in the federal court, claiming, among other things, that it violated the Establishment Clause and the Equal Protection Clause and was clearly inconsistent with the Obergefell ruling. Uh, 
one of the things it did, which made it so a prime for attack under the Establishment Clause, was to enshrine in state law a set of specified religious beliefs that were to be given preference, right. in a sense. Uh, the beliefs are, as stated in the statute, these are described as religious beliefs or moral convictions. Uh, one, marriage is or should be recognized as the union of one man and one woman, uh, of course, which is directly opposite to Obergefell. Secondly, sexual relations are properly reserved to such a marriage, which, of course, is exactly the opposite of Lawrence versus Texas. And male man or female woman refers to an individual's immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at time of birth. In other words, enshrining into Mississippi law a religious or moral belief that transgender people don't exist or that variant gender identity is a figment of their imagination. Uh, So these are the official beliefs identified in the state of Mississippi now as part of their statutory law. And believing this and acting in accord with such beliefs is now protected in Mississippi. So this basically says that businesses in the state, uh, employers, institutions, landlords, anyone in the state who wants to act on the basis of these beliefs to deny uh, services or equal treatment to LGBT people uh, cannot be sued under these laws that mm-hmm. exist in these municipalities. They're effectively preempted. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's a possible interpretation. No one knows exactly what this statute's going to do because, for one thing, it was immediately enjoined by Judge Reeves, who saw an Establishment Clause issue, didn't even rule on the Equal Protection issue. Right. He just said, set that aside. Establishment Clause provides enough of a basis for a preliminary injunction. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the whole issue that went to the Supreme Court had nothing to do with the merits of the statute as right. such. It was who had standing to challenge it. and uh, Who were some of those plaintiffs? Well, the, and, the and plaintiff included uh, the Campaign for Southern Equality, which had been the plaintiff in the marriage equality case. Right. So part of their argument was their case was being basically nullified to the extent that the state can nullify it in this mm-hmm. law. So they put together people in Mississippi who, who claimed that this violated their rights for the state to establish these religious views as part of state law and for the state to override the local ordinances uh, and deny them protection. Uh, And the view of the Fifth Circuit three-judge panel, which was a unanimous panel, uh, was that none of the plaintiffs in this case had shown that they were personally affected in any direct way by the mere passage of this law. Mm -hmm. And it would be time enough if anyone was adversely affected and thus acquired standing to sue. So it seems like the Supreme Court with this case and with the Texas um, Supreme Court case um, about same-sex benefits is basically saying, for procedural reasons, we're not going to take these cases now. Is that right? Well, they don't explain why they're denying cert. Uh, It it seems to me that uh, the law having gone into effect, the chances are pretty decent that now Someone has standing in Mississippi, and in fact, the case is back pending before Judge Reeves. It hasn't been dismissed. Okay. And the the Fifth Circuit panel had had said it should be dismissed, but Judge Reeves said, "Well, just a minute. They're going to file an amended complaint. They're going to add a few new plaintiffs, new allegations. We got to readdress the standing issue all over again." Because I don't think Judge Reeves wants to let go of this case. I mean, he's already written one opinion holding that it probably violates the First Amendment. Yeah. And he still has an alternative to explore on the Equal Protection Clause. So uh, this case is still pending. And 
and I think the court may have felt, why get involved in the middle of this on a procedural jurisdictional issue sure. when, in fact, the case is still pending? Uh, same thing with the Texas case that we talked about last month. Great. So let's talk about the Title IX case of Whitaker. Our listeners may remember that the Supreme Court had been scheduled to hear a similar transgender rights student case, the Gavin Grimm case, last March, but the case was dropped from the docket after the Trump administration withdrew a guidance on Title IX compliance that had been issued by the Obama administration. Now it's clear that the court won't be getting another bite at the apple in a similar trans rights case out of Wisconsin. Art, can you tell us about the Whitaker case and why it isn't SCOTUS bound? Yeah, Ashton Whitaker uh, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And so uh, it's sort of a replay of the Gavin Grimm case, except it got further along on the merits. Uh, In the Gavin Grimm case, you remember from Virginia, uh, the Fourth Circuit held that the district court should have deferred to the Obama administration's uh, guidance on how to interpret Title IX, which was very favorable to the rights of transgender students. And quickly rescinded by the, by the Trump, Trump administration. administration. Well, they, you know, someone woke up in the White House and said, hey, the Supreme Court's going to be having oral arguments soon on this issue. We could easily short-circuit it by just withdrawing the uh, guidance that the Obama administration issued because the Fourth Circuit didn't rule ultimately on the merits. It was ruling on the deferral to administrative interpretation. Uh, And in the meantime, of course, uh, the Whitaker case was proceeding against the Kenosha School District. That one got up to the Seventh Circuit on the merits. Uh, By the time the Seventh Circuit ruled, the Trump administration had withdrawn the Obama guidance, so there was no official administrative guidance on how to interpret. So. Addressing the statutory construction issue ab initio, the Seventh Circuit says, okay, we've just decided sexual orientation is covered under Title VII. This just sort of follows as a matter of course. And if you look at dicta in the Hively case, it's clear that they also believe that transgender is covered under sex discrimination. Mm -hmm. So they ruled in favor of Whitaker, uh, which in this case meant upholding a preliminary injunction from the district court. Uh, and then the case looked like it was going to become moot because Whitaker graduated mm-hmm. uh, before it could even really be put into effect. Uh, so uh, the district judge said, why don't you guys try to settle this? So while the school district had a cert petition on file with the Supreme Court, the parties were engaged in mediation at the direction of the district judge. And rather than respond to the cert petition, the attorneys for Whitaker kept asking the court to extend their deadline because mm. they said, we're negotiating Maybe you don't have to decide this case, and maybe you'll decide it's moot anyway because he's graduated. Uh, So they finally reached a settlement in January, reportedly, based on the press reports, $800,000 damages. And uh, additionally, uh, they agreed that they would not discriminate against Whitaker as an alum. This was the issue that was supposed to keep the Gavin Grimm case alive, but it didn't persuade the district court. Yeah, the district court dismissed it as moot. Uh, but in this case, uh, they've agreed that when Whitaker comes back for any events, he can use Good. the appropriate restroom. I mean, that is the problem with a lot of these yeah. uh, trans student bathroom cases is yeah. that your plaintiffs, by the time the... They keep graduating. But in this case, uh, part of the settlement agreement was that the parties agreed to withdraw the cert petition. So it's not going to be decided by the Supreme Court. And then... Just days ago, I mean, we're, we're recording this on uh, February 13th. Just days ago, BuzzFeed had been working very hard at getting the education department to tell them what's going on with the transgender students. And finally, someone from the education department confirmed 
that consistent with the directives out of the Justice Department, they were taking the position that transgender discrimination does not violate Title IX. So they said, we're not going to take any more complaints from transgender right. students seeking bathroom access. The irony is that we've got the court opinions. We've got the Seventh Circuit decision, which will not be going up to the Supreme Court for review. Uh, we've got district court decisions around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been a few stumbles, but uh, I think the overwhelming majority of the courts that have ruled on this question have ruled in favor of the transgender litigants. So we've got an administrative agency that is basically defined. So uh, uh, we, we have a situation which ultimately will get to the Supreme Court one way or the other. Uh, one way is a Title VII case gets up there, and since the courts all say that in construing Title IX, we look to Title VII precedents, a Title VII case will do it for us. Right. Uh, the problem is there isn't much controversy now in the lower courts about Title VII covering transgender cases. Right, yeah. That seems to be, it's becoming settled law without ever reaching the Supreme Court. It's the sexual orientation question that we need to get to the Supreme Court, right. which is why here we sit waiting for that Zarda decision from the Second Circuit. Uh, the case was argued in September. There overdue by their standards. So they must be having a pretty bitter argument in that on panel. I guess so. I've been trying to get hashtag waiting for Zarda trending on Twitter for some time now, but it's just not taking off. But let's go ahead and take a short break, and when we come back, we'll take a trip abroad and look at some of the biggest legal developments outside the U.S. We're back. Over the course of just four days, there has been a flurry of major court rulings from three continents um, that will affect the rights of tens of millions of LGBT people. And with over 1.3 billion people, India has the second largest population of any country. So, Art, let's start with India. What happened there? What happened there? Uh, What happened there is... It's, it's almost ongoing. It's, it's difficult to explain. All right. Uh, I mean, the back story is in 1860, while the British were running India, they put in their Victorian era. <laughs> we're going era. back to 1860. Yeah, their, their Victorian era. This should be a short segment. This should be a, so, all right. So, they, so we have a sodomy law in India. Right. Well, it's actually an unnatural sex law okay. that dates back to 1860. And uh, when India became independent after World War II uh, and self-governing, there was no inclination in the 1940s to do sodomy law reform. That wasn't on the top of it. They just carried that over into their penal code. Uh, But slowly but surely, a gay rights movement grew up in India, and uh, actually one of the things that fueled the challenge to the sodomy law was the AIDS epidemic in India, which is uh, pretty ferocious in India. And uh, an organization called the NAS Foundation, M-A-Z, which is sort of like the gay men's health crisis of India. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought an action uh, in the high court in Delhi, which is the uh, top-level trial court in uh, the city of Delhi, uh, attacking the sodomy law, saying it was counterproductive, it was harmful in the fight against AIDS, it was out of sync with international trends, and furthermore, it violated privacy and equality guarantees in India's own constitution. And they persuaded a trial judge uh, in Delhi who issued a ruling uh, in, this is 2009. It's amazing how long this has been pending. So in 2009, and it set off a massive celebration throughout the gay community in India, uh, which is a very sort of closeted 
sub Rosa community, people just came out like crazy, and they did yeah. these big street celebrations and everything. And uh, because the government showed no inclination to appeal it, people thought that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, that decision, and eventually the government will get around to modifying the law. But it seems in Indian jurisprudence, we don't have the same concept of standing that we do in American jurisprudence. And so a group of opponents of gay rights, social conservatives, led by an astrologist by the name of Suresh Kumar Kushal, they filed an appeal with the Supreme Court saying that the case was offensive to the majority of society, uh, the ruling that it was undermining traditional values, and et cetera, et cetera, and they managed to persuade a two-judge panel. Uh, the India Supreme Court has 26 judges. Now, well, well you have to understand... <laughs> well, that, that gives you some cushion right. in case you get a couple yeah. of Gorsuches. Well, they have 1.3 <laughs> billion people. They have a, a monumental amount of litigation yes, going on. Yeah. They can't do it with nine judges like we do. We only have 300 million people in this Do country. they all sit together? No, they sit in panels. Okay. Uh, they never sit on bank, all 26. The largest panel, I think, is nine. Wow. And the chief justice plays a major role in assigning people to sit on panels. It's not done by some kind of blind, uh, you know, uh, anon- anonymous uh, random system. system. The way we, mo- most of the courts of appeals, uh, the three-judge panels yeah. are put together through a... A, a rotation and uh, uh, so uh, the, the astrologist Nas- so the astrologist <laughs> succeeded in persuading uh, maybe they were looking at, at star charts or something but uh, the, uh, Sounds the decision like a Taurus to me and this was a, the weird thing is the judge who wrote the opinion then promptly retired <laughs> so but uh, the opinion basically said look as far as we can tell homosexuals are a tiny tiny percentage of the population this isn't a big deal Leave it to the legislature. It's not a constitutional issue. Uh, and they uh, rejected the High Court of Delhi's reliance on Lawrence versus Texas and other Western precedents. Uh, so, And that was 2014? That was 2014. You see how long it takes you know, from 2009. It took five years to get that. And, and now, with Lawrence looking internationally, that yes. was such a right. you know big brouhaha at the time right. that the that the opinion you know looked to other nations right. with respect to and the European Court of Human Rights, right? And, you know. and so India was right. So so the Kushal uh, plaintiffs uh, filed a curative petition seeking to get a review from a larger panel, and that's been pending forever. It seems. Uh, because they filed it shortly after the two, 2014 decision, and here we're sitting, it's 2018. Mm-hmm. And a, uh, a decision was made to allow a larger panel to review that case, and it's still sitting there waiting to be reviewed. In the meantime, a different group of plaintiffs who were impatient, not surprisingly, decided to petition. And so this new group of plaintiffs who already had a petition on file uh, reacting to a 2014 case that was decided around the same time as the two-judge panel in Kushal, which also cast some doubt on it. Uh, they really pushed hard, and they got a hearing on January 8th uh, before a three-judge panel, mm-hmm. which included the chief justice. Uh, and in that January 8th hearing, which was immediately followed by an order by the court, very unusual, uh, the court said, based on all the arguments presented to us, taking the quote is, taking all the aspects in a cumulative manner, we are of the view the decision in Suresh Kumar Kushal's case requires reconsideration 
As the question relates to constitutional issues, we think it appropriate to refer the matter to a larger bench. Mm. Uh, let the matter be placed before the Honorable Chief Justice of India on the administrative side for consideration of the appropriate larger bench. Mm. So the Chief Justice is going to pick and choose. And he quickly picked and chose a five-member bench, which caused an uproar because he didn't include any of the senior justices who we thought would vote to uphold the Kushal decision. Oh. I mean, there's, the fix is in, most likely. But uh, there's, there's been an uproar, and several judges are calling for a, a reconstitution of the bench. Yeah. I mean, it's a big scandal. That's a real power to be able to hand-select the judges that you want to hear a particular case. Right. And and Indian jurisprudence is famous for being very slow motion, as you can see. This is moving fast. This is moving fast. Supposedly, there was already going to be a hearing in January, although I haven't seen any news reports about it. Probably pretty soon, which means the second largest country in the world will finally get rid of its sodomy law. All right. Let's go to the European Union Let's go to the European Union. Uh, Romania... Or if you are into Yiddish and klezmer music, Romania, Romania, Romania. And who is it? It's greatest I mean, who hits. Isn't it? Yeah. So, so this <laughs> can involves, you sing a little something? Oh, uh, you don't want me to sing on, <laughs> on mic. So the, this involves a fellow named Adrian Coman, a Romanian citizen, who was working for a European Union agency in Brussels when he happened to fall in love with Robert Hamilton, an American citizen who happened to be working for a company in Brussels, and they got married. And uh, Coleman wanted to come back to Romania with his husband, and the Romanian authorities wouldn't give his husband a spousal visa. They said, we'll give you a tourist visa, but you got to leave. Mm. You know, and, and Coleman said, no, the idea is we're, we're planning to settle down, yeah. and I want to bring my husband. And the people said, well, you can't bring your husband because we don't have same-sex marriage in Romania. Uh, he, but he said, but you're a member of the European Union, right, Romania? And we have this travel directive that people can move around. And in fact, under the travel directive, it's well established that he has a right to bring his husband in, but not necessarily as a husband, mm. unless the directive is interpreted to mean that if you're legally married anywhere in Europe, any country that's a member of the union has to recognize the marriage, at least for the purposes of giving a spousal visa and letting your spouse, same-sex spouse, settle in the country. Well, so he files suit, and the uh, Romanian Constitutional Court referred the question to the European Court of Justice, which is the arbiter for the European Union. Uh, So the way the European Court of Justice works is they refer incoming questions like this to the Office of the Advocate General. And that sounds like an individual, but it's not. There are a whole bunch of advocate generals. Uh, And they particularly uh, referred this one to a fellow named Melchior Watlett. And Mr. Watlett wrote an advisory opinion that goes now to the court, in which he construed the directive on travel, and specifically the mention of spouse, to include same-sex spouses if they were legally married in a nation that uh, allows same-sex marriage. Uh, Now, if Mr. Coleman had married a man who was a citizen of a European Union country, this wouldn't be an issue, because people who are citizens of European countries have the freedom to To relocate anywhere anywhere in the Union. Uh, But because Mr. Hamilton is an American, his right to travel is derivative of his husband's right. So he has to come in as a spouse if he doesn't want to have to go out every three months and then get a new visa to come back in or whatever. I can't believe this is the first time that they're wrestling with this directive. Well, it's it's. I guess there weren't too many Romanians who were going out of the country and marrying their boyfriends, you know. <laughs> 
I just hope we don't get Romania like a Romanian Brexit. Uh, Brexit? Not over this issue, <laughs> not likely. And and okay. this is one of the other reasons why Brexit is such a bad deal for gay people yeah. in terms of the UK. So we're going to take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a ruling from a state appellate court right here in New York. There's a pressing need in New York and in other states across the country to revise and update state law to reflect modern-day family realities and to effectively take account of the existence of court rulings at both the state and federal level that require married same-sex couples and different sex couples to be treated equally under the law. Here in New York, we have the New York Marriage Equality Act and also a recent decision by the state's highest court recognizing that non-biological parents can seek custody and visitation. This month, a New York appellate court ruled that a sperm donor to a lesbian married couple was equitably stopped from seeking a paternity determination regarding the child conceived using his sperm. Now we're here sitting down with our very own legal director, Brett Figlewski, to talk a little bit about this important ruling from the New York Appellate Court and also the state of family law in New York with respect to LGBT parents. Hi, Brett. Hi, Eric. Can you set the table by discussing a little bit about why New York law treated same-sex couples and LGBT families so poorly? And second, why your work in the Book B case, which was the previous case that I alluded to, was so important for children born to same-sex couples who couldn't or didn't marry and later split up? Sure. Well, I think the answer to the first part of the question is just the historic discrimination against our community and the lack of recognition of our families. And as you mentioned, it was only in 2011 when marriage equality passed in New York State. And so that really, of course, was the culmination of years of seeking recognition from the courts um, for our marriages and, by extension, for the dignity of our families. And the Brooke B case, in many ways, was an extension of that. And it really sought to recognize the rights of non-biological, non-adoptive parents. And we were fortunate. We won. And so that holding has had repercussions across the state, and we're seeing a lot of cases arise now um, which apply uh, the holding in the Brook B decision. Can you tell us a little bit about the facts underlying the Brook B decision, and who was Brook B? Sure. So Brook um, was our client, and she came to us from a county south of Buffalo, and basically was the non-biological, non-adoptive mother to a little boy. Um, She and her partner at the time had planned to have a child together, and um, they did so by means of artificial insemination. They never married, never adopted the child um, for a variety of reasons, including lack of financial resources. Um, And when they split up, the biological mother prevented Brooke from having a relationship or access to the child. And of course, this was heartbreaking, but under the previous law, Brooke had no standing to seek custody or visitation at the courts. So she couldn't even go into court and say, 
you know, let me present my case. I should be entitled to custody and visitation. The courts wouldn't even allow her to come in. Essentially, she couldn't get her foot in the courthouse door. However, um, because there happened to be a very good attorney for the child appointed in the case, um, there was lots of initial motion practice, which later became evidence as the court, as the case um, wound its way up the courts. Um, her case was dismissed at the family court level, again by the appellate division for the fourth department, um, but the Court of Appeals um, took the case on, and that's when Legal and Lambda and the law firm of Blank Rome came on board, and um, we had a victorious decision back in 2016. And it really is a, a historic ruling, particularly because the, the case law before this was so poor. Yes, yeah, so the, the horrible um, case law previously was from 1991, a case um, called Allison D., and basically it established a bright line for determination of who has standing in custody and visitation cases and said that only biological or adoptive parents do. And so that left a whole lot of folks out in the cold, especially LGBT parents. Um, so it was horrible precedent, and in many ways really... Um, really turned its back on decades or even centuries of jurisprudence that really um, looked at the equities and the facts. Um, and judges, um, you know, were judging. And Allison D. established this bright line, which caused so much hardship and heartache. And so that has now been demolished. And courts, once again, um, are really applying these historic legal principles. The dustbin of New York history. Exactly. Um, so let's fast forward. Tell sure. us a little bit about this latest ruling from the Appellate Division, Third Department. What were the facts? What was the legal challenge? What happened below? And why did the ruling matter so much to New York law? Sure. So this was a case decided by the Third Department, and it's the case of a lesbian couple um, who married and had a child subsequent to marriage. And so one of the issues was whether the historic presumption of legitimacy applies. And basically, the presumption of legitimacy um, is a little bit of an archaic um, term, certainly, and maybe even a doctrine. Simplify it for us. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. So if any of um, our listeners like me like sort of um, you know, sort of masterpiece um, episodes about English history. Legitimacy was a really <laughs> important thing because it determined who had inheritance rights and all of that. And you always knew, knew who the mother of a child was, but you know, you never were sure who the father was. So basically, the presumption of legitimacy said that a child born to a married couple is presumed to be a legitimate child of that married couple. So uh, what was at issue here was whether the presumption of legitimacy um, applies to same-sex married couples as it does to opposite-sex married couples. And the court unequivocally said that it did. Did they rely at all on Obergefell and other uh, major Supreme Court cases in coming to this decision? Was it primarily based on looking at Brook B and the direction of where family law was going? I know other states are grappling with this question about the presumption of parentage and... I think Obergefell, no doubt about it, was absolutely a watershed case for our movement and is always, um, you know, sort of 
in the background and the foundation, certainly referenced in this case, um, and perhaps more importantly, the Marriage Equality Act of 2011. I see. Um, that was, um, you know, at the forefront of the court's reasoning. Um, but the court also relied very heavily on Brook B. Um, the presumption of le- legitimacy is a rebuttable presumption. And so this is a case in which the, the sperm donor... Um, almost a year after the birth of the child, filed for paternity. So this is sort of, you can imagine, you know, every family's nightmare, uh, worst nightmare, that, you know, this person who had agreed to be the donor solely and would have no other um, rights or responsibilities with respect to the child suddenly appears out of nowhere and says, I want to be deemed a parent. And so the court held that the presumption of legitimacy applied, and in addition, estoppel prevented it from being rebutted. And estoppel um, is a very powerful legal tool, a um, little bit of a clunky term, but um, I basically think that estoppel means that you can't assert a position that is contrary to your prior conduct or actions, or sometimes I call it sort of the facts on the ground um, argument. And basically, he had agreed um, prior to donating his sperm that he was only to be a uh, a donor. Um, All of his actions after the birth of the child indicated that he had no intention to be a parent. And the court really looked at all of those facts and said that... um, Estoppel prevented him from being deemed a parent in yeah. this case. It's basically like a way to look at what's fair. Right? A way to look at what's fair. And estoppel um, is really governed in these cases by the best interest of the child, or that is really the paramount consideration. And so the court is going to look at what would it mean to the child and to the family integrity if we suddenly have a paternity test and the child who thinks that his or her family uh, basically is comprised of two mommies suddenly learns, oh, there's this other person, a complete stranger, who's now part of my family. And so the trauma that could ensue and the instability and the, the rupture to the sense of integrity of the family unit are really taken into consideration by the court here. And so this is really important for the recognition of the dignity of LGBT families, which is really the hallmark phrase of the Obergefell decision. Can you tell us what other, besides the presumption of legitimacy um, and access to custody and visitation rights, being able to go into court and and access those rights, what other updates to New York law uh, are we looking to see and other types of cases that might work their way through the courts post-Brook B? Well, I think we're really um, looking to see how courts apply the Brook B holding and whether it is narrowly or broadly construed. So the most narrow interpretation of Brook B is that it only applies where there's a preconception agreement to raise a child to get together. And so you can imagine a whole host of scenarios in which that wouldn't be the situation. You may have a couple which met when um, the mother was pregnant, so it's not preconception, but during the pregnancy, or even a couple who met after the birth of the child, but then 
this new partner was clearly intended to be a parent and did um, serve as a parent. So all of those permutations, um, I think, will test how broad um, the Brookby holding is. And Legal is working on a number of cases um, which test the Brookby holding in those various scenario scenarios. And we, of course, um, believe that Brookby has wide applicability and should be understood very broadly to protect our families. And we're going to fight to make sure that that happens. Lastly, can you just give us, I mean, how much of an outlier is New York with respect to picking up parentage laws and updating them either through the courts or legislatively versus the rest of the country? Sure. Well, thanks to Brooke B., I would say we're now sort of in the pack. However, um, in the Brooke B. decision, the Court of Appeals declined to accept a test that many other states use. Um, and I think that all of these cases, which are now wending their way through the courts, are going to result um, ultimately in the adoption of some kind of a test so that it's clear that Brook B does, we hope, apply very broadly to families as they're constituted in New York State. Well, that's just wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of an insight into the way that New York family law is developing and how the legal is basically leading the charge here. We certainly are appreciative of your work and your perspective. Thanks so much, Brett. Well, thank you, Eric. We are back to wrap up with our very special Of Note segment for this episode. It's our 40th anniversary this year, and we are so lucky to be sitting down and chatting this month, as we do every month, with our founder, Art Leonard. I'm really interested, Art, to hear you talk to us about how our bar association came into being and what it was like to start a legal organization for gay men and lesbians back in the late 70s. Well, what, what happened was I came to New York fresh from law school. I'd never really lived in the city before except as a summer clerk for a law firm uh, after my uh, second year of law school. But I came back and I didn't really know other gay lawyers at all. I felt like there must be a community out there. Is there a way I can tap into it? And I, I ultimately learned about Lambda Legal, but at the time Lambda Legal was a small committee of people who just sort of uh, did a few cases from time to time and some amicus briefs. Uh, it wasn't like an organization uh, of the gay legal community. And uh, so I had joined the gay synagogue, and I met like a handful of gay law students who came and one or two lawyers, and uh, the talk bubbled up of maybe trying to start an organization. So I uh, actually put a notice in the New York Law Journal, of all places, uh, about trying to start a... Uh, a gay uh, legal association of some sort, and I got a bunch of responses. I also put an ad in the Village Voice, yeah, in the in the personals, <laughs> and, and so uh, we got about ten people together in my living room. It was the first group. There was a handful of law students, mainly from Columbia, because there was a Columbia law student, Barrett Brick, who was active at the gay synagogue, so he brought some of his friends. And they were one or two people who had responded to the Village Voice thing, not because they were lawyers, but because they were interested in meeting lawyers. <laughs> so, we had, so we had a few hangers on there and, and uh, one or two other lawyers who I knew. So I, I held this uh, meeting in my living room and we agreed 
to start a social group that would meet monthly. And we met in people's apartments. And I kept the mailing list, which was confidential, mm -hmm. and mailed out in plain envelopes with no return address, you know, just a P.O. box yeah. on it, because I rented a P.O. box for this so that there could be complete anonymity. This was the 70s. No one was out in practice, right. or hardly anyone. Uh, and it just grew slowly. And, and what really gave it a zing was the AIDS epidemic. And, and all of a sudden, people were interested in doing something more formal and setting up a legal referral service in setting up a pro bono committee to provide legal services to people with AIDS, and that's when it really took off in uh, 1984. What about uh, Law Notes? How did that start? That started with my monthly mailings to people, okay. and uh, just about meetings. And as I heard about things, I would stick in little news items, and at some point I started to become more systematic about it, actually looking for things. Mm -hmm. But that really took off in a big way when I joined the faculty at New York Law School in 1982 because I suddenly had a library <laughs> that I could uh, work in. Uh, I mean, I didn't feel I could do any of this in my law firm uh, because I wasn't out of my law firm yeah. <laughs> typically at the time. Wow. Uh, but and, and especially when New York Law School started to supply us with uh, desktop computers with internet access and I began to be, have Westlaw and Lexus at my fingertips. Wow. And so now it's like uh, almost every day searching for new cases and new news stories for law notes. Uh, and uh, the, the newsletter itself exploded in size uh, after the uh, Windsor decision in 2013. We'd been coasting along at about 20 to 25 pages a month, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the volume of litigation exploded. Now it's 30, 40, 50 pages in a month and uh, with contributing writers and everything else. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of LGBT Bar NY or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us on the web. This and future podcasts can be found online at iTunes or at Podbean. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there. If you like the podcast, it's how other people find out about us. Follow LGBT Bar NY on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. You can also follow me at Ed Lesh. Give us a shout out on Twitter, tell us you like the pod, and we'll retweet you. Thanks again. Back in March. <laughs>